philosophy. Hi, my name is Amy Wilson. I'm a writer, and this is Beauty Matters. I'm recording it on September 2nd, 2016, in New York City, with my audio producer, Serene. This is the third in a series that started with On Loneliness and continued with About Courage, and it's likely to be the last. The reason why I'm writing this down and reading it rather than speaking off the cuff as I did in the last two is relatively transparent. I'm nervous, and I want to be careful about the things I say, and I want to not forget or stumble on any parts, and I want to be deliberate. By writing it down and reading it rather than talking extemporaneously to you, my goal is to communicate in a manner that is closer to the essence of who I actually am, as close as I can get to the thoughts that occupy my mind when I'm totally alone. Uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. What I want to say is, art is just the way we describe what we do. This is an audio essay. I grew up in Oregon and currently live in New York, but I spent some highly formative young adult years in Ann Arbor, Michigan, as a college student first, but then just as a resident of the town. In my mid-20s living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, many of my friends were graduate students. I grew to have a sense of myself as a non-student among students, a working girl among academics able to hold friendly bar conversation with theoreticians in a variety of subjects, but a personal specialist in none, or at least none that could be arranged and described by the University of Michigan. My chief skill then, as it probably still is now, was seeing the connective tissue between disparate topics. My chief weakness then, as it probably still is now, was caring too little about the distinctions between fields. As a writer and a person, I am a generalist, concerned with the universal and the broad, deeply satisfied when theories move toward unifying and of everything. Boundless, infinite, my main challenge is keeping myself and my writing from dissolving at the edges into meaningless generality. I push myself toward specificity, and I'm happy when I achieve it. One night in Ann Arbor, my friend Sam arrived at the bar from a meeting with his dissertation advisor. He said that his advisor had told him that he had not read nearly enough of the existing literature on his dissertation topic to even begin to begin to begin to write. Sam, in the thick of his PhD program, was the most outwardly and inwardly intellectual person I'd ever met. And if he hadn't read enough, oh gosh, did this moment strike me, and it still occasionally haunts me today. When your subject is life, when your specialization is none, how can you ever possibly have read enough on your topic to begin to begin to write? In my college years in Ann Arbor, before I hung out with graduate students in bars, 
I was a creative writing and literature major at the University of Michigan's Residential College. Established in 1967 as an alternative liberal arts school within the giant state institution, it didn't give grades until forced to in the mid-2000s. I studied creative writing as a series of totally individual tutorials with the head of the department, whose name is Warren Hecht. I would meet Warren in his office, which was located in the same building as my dorm, and he would read my short stories out loud and mark with a pencil the parts that didn't sound right to him. When, as a sophomore, I went nervously to my first meeting with Warren, he said, your shirt has a typewriter on it. Is that because you're a writer, huh? When, as a senior, I was trying for an honors thesis in creative writing, I went to Warren Hecht's office and he said, what you're doing is you're writing stories, and what you need to be doing is you need to be writing a thesis. So leave my office and don't come back until you have a thesis. And I did. I still remember that walk across the campus from the RC dorm to my apartment. What I remember is the itch-scratching feeling of rearranging stories in my head. What I furthermore remember is the exhilaration of being released from working on something I knew wasn't good. Not many teachers or advisors, I don't think, can do that. Warren wanted me to be able to do it all myself, to hear and to feel what wasn't good. To me, Warren Hecht was the sage on a mountain, a reformed old watercolor painting hippie sage in an L.L. Bean turtleneck that covered his arms and legs of Coney Island tattoos, which is to say an eccentric sage which is to say, the only kind of sage. He told me the only way to learn how to be a writer is to live in a way that gives you something to write about later. When I was younger, I, I thought perhaps this meant glamor, excitement, adventure, consorting with interesting characters, and I worried slightly about my idea ability to do that. A few years later, I know this also means conducting self-driven observation, testing, and analysis, and trusting the results. I've never thought of myself as a philosopher. What do you have to be to be that? Even from my perspective, as a layperson with more inroads to the academy than your average bear, modern philosophy as a field is impenetrable and mysterious. The natural haven of those obsessed with distinctions, drawn finer and finer, and starting, I am well-versed enough to know, with continental or analytic. To be into philosophy, don't you have to be technical? To be into philosophy, don't you have to be able to remember and associate slim cuts of theory with relatively obscure historical figures? To be into philosophy, mustn't you believe with religious fervor in the existence of distinct schools of thought which propagate and bleed and relate to each other with the unimpeachable solidity of pieces on a chessboard? Don't you have to be completely comfortable with abstract ways of thinking having never felt yourself to be alienated from any sort of intellectual institution? And, unavoidably, don't you have to be white 
and male. Not in the dictionary definition, but certainly in philosophy's application are certain dubious strictures enforced. And although I just said that one of my chief intellectual weaknesses is my disbelief in external structures, I'm not made of iron. In fact, my belief in external structures is strongest when I can somehow use it to justify my own slightly timid and self-deprecating nature. And so I've never thought of myself as a philosopher. Just as somebody who loves to think, staying up late, and watching the Golden Girls, writing in cafes while a summer rainstorm rages outside. Somebody who always wants to know what the gestalt is, what's trendy, and what's more, why what is trendy is trendy. Who will cheerfully tell a stranger at a party that she likes to write poetry about the nature of time. Who believes that there is such a thing as truth even if it is an unreachable destination. Just as somebody who is working on a project, an audio essay called Beauty Matters. Last summer, I went to Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, to study for a week at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. The class I took was taught by a poet and a poetry critic who are married and who are both professors at the University of Maine, Jennifer Moxley and Steve Evans. The central thesis of the class, which did only meet for four days, but got through a surprising amount of material, was based on the idea that poetry and philosophy can be conceived of like a couple who have broken up. A philosopher would want me to tell you this is based off a passage in Plato's Republic. A poet loves the idea in its self-generated instant. And instantly this idea made sense to me. And instantly I knew that poetry would be the feminine half of this equation, although in that regard, of course, I am biased. What a way to understand the sometimes exasperated nature of the way poetry and philosophy will regard the same topic. Say, morality. Poetry says, interpret. And philosophy says, analyze. When I took this class, I knew I was poetry and that philosophy was my ex-lover, this sense of myself helped along by the necessity of believing in the necessity of my attendance at the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, and in my experience having personally loved at least one philosopher. 
Philosophy, I wrote in a poem during this class. You're a reasonable guy, but don't think I don't see you tapping your foot while I'm trying to talk to you about my feelings. A year and change later, I see myself less as philosophy's distant lover and more as the exasperated product of squabbling parents. Like many, a child of the doomed but glamorous marriage between poetry and philosophy, taking after my mother, but empathizing occasionally with my father, rolling my eyes with him when she dissolves into self-indulgence, commiserating at length with her over his more-than-occasional thoughtlessness and cruelty. The child of two strong-minded parents, pulled to find my own path, but inevitably influenced by their dueling perspectives and the weight of the history behind each. Which is all a long and metaphorical way of saying I am a poet, but I don't know where I fit in. I have a giant backlog of unpublished poems and a chapbook manuscript I doggedly convinced myself to keep submitting, mostly so when I say I am a poet and kind people inevitably ask the follow-up question, I can say, well, I have a chapbook manuscript I'm submitting to places right now. My poetry, like most of the rest of my writing, is somewhere between confessional and theoretical, and I wouldn't mind if it were described as beautiful. Although this is not the going thing in modern-day poetry, or so I have observed, poetry that is beautiful or lovely or whimsical or charming is also perceived to be light, and if I may say, somewhat suspect. The best way I've come to understand this is that modern poetry, suffering as it is under the weight of the loss of easily recognizable forms like the sonnet, in a self-defensive way regards as important above all else, the unconventional. This is partially a political position, poetry as the necessary dissident, the counterpoint to oppressive systems. Like all things right now, poetry is very political. This I can find no argument with, especially considering that poetry right now is a growing haven for the voices of racially and otherwise disadvantaged people. What concerns me is that it is possible to become ossified in your view of yourself as alternative, a counterpoint, and forget that there are more than two ways of being. I'm not saying that my poetry hasn't found success because it's too beautiful. I'm not a monster. I think my poetry has a long way to go in finding refinement, just as I do. And I know that poetry is one of the longest games of all. That part doesn't really bother me. I will tell you, though, that recently I got in the mail a Xeroxed copy of my entry form to a poetry contest. And on it was penciled, thanks for submitting. I enjoyed reading your poems. In that moment, I knew I hadn't won the contest. Enjoyment means very little in the world of modern poetry. And of course, enjoyable is not always the same thing as beautiful. Sometimes what is beautiful is so because it is exquisitely and perfectly unpleasant. There's a line from one of my favorite movies, Moonstruck, written by one of my favorite writers, John Patrick Shanley, delivered by one of my favorite people, Cher. 
Cher and Nicolas Cage have attended the opera, she for the first time, to indulge him. And when they descend the stairs of the Met after watching La Boheme, she says, that was so awful. He says, awful? And she says, beautiful, sad. You notice I say exquisitely and perfectly. Another way of saying that could be specifically. Another way of saying that could be harmoniously. I said I thought truth was real, but possibly an unreachable destination. What I think is beautiful in art is what could seem to accompany the journey. In my current life, I work at the visitor center and gift shop of a museum on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. My job is to talk to people when they talk to me, to be friendly and helpful, but just sassy enough so that tourists feel they've spoken to a real New York girl. The days feel long, but are over as soon as I leave. Sometimes on slow days, I spend long stretches of time drifting around the sales floor in a semi-daze looking without seeing at our collection, which ranges from Emma Goldman's biography to floaty scarves printed with iridescent bees. We have one corner of the shop devoted to our selection of, and even when I say this word, I feel a concomitant hole forming in my stomach, our collection of quotables. You know this line of products. You've seen this line of products. They are perfectly harmless, and yet in their implacable occupation of one corner of the shop to which I am confined for eight and a half hours a day, have the ability to irritate and upset me deeply. In highly graphic designed fashion on mugs and greeting cards, they impart wisdom like, life begins at the end of your comfort zone, and anyone can be cool, but being awesome takes practice. The sun will come out tomorrow is particularly popular with European tourists. Many of the quotables attribute totally inane sayings to great writers, as in one example that quotes Edith Wharton, we ought to be opening a bottle of wine. In the unique intellectual mood produced by long hours of literally pacing a floor, these quotables have occasionally seemed to me to be ambassadors from my worst nightmares from a universe where we know all the secrets to life, but can only discuss them in the most highly generalized terms. A universe where the truth is right in front of us, but it's painted in watercolor script font, made to be twee, encapsulated, the antithesis of anything that could possibly be taken seriously, 
taken to heart. I thought of this because of what I myself said just now. Truth could be the destination, beauty, the journey. These particular words, you know them. But it's long been my opinion, inspired by a friend's reading of William James, that the worst and the best are closer together than either is to the mediocre. An aphorism printed on the side of a mug is cutesy, mockable, but Ecclesiastes is enduring poetry capable of standing up to generations and generations of close reading. To everything there is a season, from one angle the most boringly inoffensive statement of physical reality, and from another a shimmering piece of universal metaphysical wisdom. This too shall pass, the famous spell of legend that can make a sad man happy and a happy man sad, or a rage-inducing blandishment of no comfort at all. What is universal in a good way is also universal in a bad way. Generalities can embrace us or they can smother us. And sometimes, I think, being reminded of the truth is nothing other than irritating. And this is what I fear when I fear that the quotables are ambassadors from that universe. I fear the human impulse to despise and contain that which is larger than simple understanding. Or in our modern era, what is not explicable with pure rationality. What I come back to in my own existence over and over again is that there are no solutions in life other than the ones I already know. Drink water, be kind, invest in the moment, but also look for something with compound interest. As a friend of mine recently said about having turned 30, I'm coming to the age where I really want to believe that there is a way out other than through. In a thinking person, simplicity produces rage. If it's so goddamn simple that this mug knows what to say to me about life, then why isn't it easy? I don't know why I wanted to write something called Beauty Matters. It came to me all of a piece, honestly, in the shower. The first would be on loneliness, the second about courage, the third, Beauty Matters. Just like that, the titles as nuggets, enough inspiration, divine or otherwise, to get me that far and no further. I've been afraid of this. I knew it would be the hardest. Partially because the topic is the largest and the closest to traditional, what's that word again, philosophy. But also partially because, somewhat unlike loneliness or courage, beauty is something we don't talk about, except for how we talk about it all the time. These are the things that have always captivated me. My guiding light, a George Orwell quote saying, to see what is in front of one's nose requires a constant struggle. And beauty has thorns, 
because to talk about it is to acknowledge its existence as an animating force in our lives. To acknowledge its existence is to begin to confront our own place in what we know, beyond a doubt, is a hierarchy. Of course, there are so many kinds of beauty. What I'm mostly talking about when I use the word is the metaphysical kind, which for me personally is experiential and based in moments that seem to impart some kind of unique yet grounded radiance. For example, turning the corner onto a Greenwich Village block at just the right time of the evening. Sure, this is physical beauty. The light on the trees, the glowing storefronts, the smell of smoke in the air, music. It is also metaphorical, the continued existence of that record store in an era when record stores close, the human labor involved in keeping a street neat and clean. It is social, watching other people walk by, be joyful, have conversations, be in love, participate. And it is deeply personal, the happiness that I myself have the freedom to walk down a street unencumbered, that my life choices have brought me to Greenwich Village of an evening, that I can participate too. All of these things combine to make me think, this is beautiful. And this layered nature is also true of personal physical beauty, although we very often as a culture refuse to acknowledge this. Or if we do acknowledge it, do so in the kind of bubblegum, flat way of a quotable. If you have good thoughts, they will shine out of your face and you will always look lovely. Rolled doll. In the real world, particularly in the world of a young woman, perhaps particularly in the world of a young woman living in New York City, when physical beauty is discussed, it is discussed as part of one of the cruelest economies of scarcity imaginable. Beauty is imagined to be both consumable and limited, a resource distributed evenly or unevenly, a kingdom ruled by the invisible hand. I blame capitalism, not the actual economic system, but the way in which capitalist thinking has come to govern all aspects of human interaction that makes us believe we are in a hierarchy and we must behave accordingly that makes us believe resources are scarce and we must compete, that makes us believe this is natural. Overgrown capitalist thinking is threatened by anything it cannot control, and I believe this includes true beauty. I am far from beyond the actual internal effects of the system and probably suffer from it more than most people believe I do. In recent years, I've come to associate this less with the usual line of young female insecurity, i.e. that I worry about my fitness in a sexual and romantic economy, and more with my general existential insecurity, the source of which I can't or won't name. Worrying about my appearance is, I believe, less about what other people might think about my appearance and more about my anxiety over appearing anywhere at all. I am old enough to know and to have seen that most people don't think about my appearance because they are too busy thinking about their own. 
and yet these things are related. When the way I look is appreciated by someone I trust and enjoy, from that I feel seen, and that feels good and necessary on the deepest of levels. When the way I look is appreciated or commented on by someone I don't trust, from that I feel observed, and that feels just as threatening as the other thing feels good. This is, I believe, one of the violent things we do to young women, is to place them, us, in a world where there is no option other than to be observed. Even those who don't have the same natural predilection toward reserve that I do suffer from this. No human being is meant to withstand observation from all times, at all angles, or rather, I should say, from any angle, at any time, unpredictably. Unpredictability is one of the greatest psychological burdens. And young women know comments on our appearance can appear from thin air. And those who do seem to enjoy this or to be able to withstand this, we despise as well. Women who make their living off their bodies or off producing images of themselves. Never mind the demand for these images that we seem to imagine is produced not from inside any one of us, but from somewhere in between all of us, unaccountable, inexplicable. An old, old, old problem. Madonna whore, the woman question. When it comes to personal beauty, to trust another person with the right to observe and appreciate our image is to create a fence we know can never go all the way around the field. But we build the fence and turn to look at it, never minding the wind at our backs. For me, trust has been a way out of this problem of beauty, or at least something pointing the way toward the way out. Can I trust that my face is good enough as a face, having lost all objective evaluation of it, after 28 years, it is a relief to say yes. I said, in a thinking person, simplicity produces rage. And yet, isn't it true, and don't I know it to be true, that simplicity also produces peace? It can. And I know as well that while generality can dissolve at the edges into meaninglessness, it can also bring people together. I find today's intellectual culture to be very interested in, even obsessed with, identity, with discerning who is speaking from what experience, with rooting speakers in their experience, and with navigating who is allowed to speak from what experience. I appreciate the importance of identity as an intellectual position, but think two things about it. One, 
that the way we currently construct identity, race, gender, class, sometimes, is just that, a construction and current, and two, that there are many facets of identity beyond the ones by which we currently and most concretely sort ourselves. That being the case, I'm invested not only in investigating the aspects of identity that are less politically charged than race and gender, but also in placing identity in an entirely individual sphere. More specifically, in seeing the ways that we sort ourselves as real and formative, but also as just some of many lenses to understand ourselves, each other, and the world. This investment is not entirely uninfluenced by my own position of relative privilege within the system as it currently stands, but also, and I think it's fair to say, comes from the side of myself that sincerely doubts and rages against this system as it is. And in that, I think many of us can agree, no matter where our position is. To silo off issues that are seen as separate from each other is one of the ways in which we are prevented from seeing the magnitude and reach of the problem as it is. In my perspective, the limits and freedoms of which I believe I have adequately described to you. There is no real difference between, speaking concretely for a moment, the areas of social justice as we divide them. Education is neighborhoods, is war, is prisons, is policing, is law, is environment, is family, is gender, is race, is sex, is money. As I've gotten older, I've learned to see the value of categories. It's good to be organized, to narrow things down so that you can talk about them and address them. Lord knows I struggle to narrow things down. And yet I also think it's of paramount importance to be flexible, to see categories as removable grids, to play with them, to be able to place yourself inside or outside of them, to question hierarchies when you find yourself feeling that you are in one, to empower yourself as an individual to have an identity that is uniquely formed, whether or not it is externally observable. What does all this have to do with beauty and its matteringness? It's the result of my observation and analysis, just like Warren Hecht directed me to do. My observation, directly related to my identity as a writer, regardless of the status of my chapbook submission or the genre by which my work is classified. My observation, from all the things I have taken in in my life and continue to take in, all the floors I continue to pace. My observation, as I exist in this world just like the rest of you, and am alarmed by this world just like the rest of you, and wish to write something to my future self, to let her know what I thought when I was embroiled in this moment. Beauty matters, but not in the same way to everybody. It matters to me because it helps me keep going. 
beauty matters, and we already know it does. It's been written all around us all along. Beauty matters, but we don't always know what it is. Beauty matters, and sometimes it shouldn't. Beauty matters because it is a source of light. Beauty matters because there is such a thing as truth. Beauty matters, and I can see it. Beauty matters because it is proof of all that I can't understand. <laughs>